We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Hi, I'm Dan Krinas from the Leader of Learning podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure to check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in 3, 2, 1. Hey, just a couple things real quick. As you listen to this interview with uh, Anthony Kim, I hope that you will take his ideas about how to do education differently and actually apply them with some students by participating in the Conrad Challenge, which is going on right now. Go to conradchallenge.org. If you missed my interview with Nancy Conrad about that, go to transformativeprincipal.org slash Nancy Conrad, and you will be able to listen to that. Really powerful stuff, getting kids engaged in doing the actual work and talk about being personalized, which is what Anthony Kim here is all about. So I hope you enjoyed this interview but want to make sure you were paying attention and had a chance to go back and listen to Nancy Conrad's interview as well and get some students with you to join the Conrad Challenge. That's at conradchallenge.org. Welcome to Transformative Principle. This is episode 244. For all of the show notes, you can go to transformativeprincipal.org slash episode 244. Today, I'm excited to have on the podcast uh, Anthony Kim, who's the uh, founder and CEO of Education Elements, which is a company that my 
uh, school district has been working with for the last couple of years, and we've had a great experience. And uh, Anthony recently wrote a book called The New School Rules, Six Vital Practices for Thriving and Responsive Schools. And so I thought it'd be great to get him on the podcast and talk about some of those new rules. And with that, I'd like to say thank you and welcome to Transformative Principle, Anthony. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it was super cool to meet you in person in San Francisco at our Personalized Learning Summit in May. Yes, that that was awesome. And that was a great conference. I very much enjoyed it. And I, I love the way that you've uh, grown that. You talked a little bit about the history of that at the conference and how it started out small. And now it's in this uh, this big, huge event with tech tours included. And so that's uh, that was a pretty cool thing to be able to be in San Francisco and and visit. I got to visit one of the companies that helps inspire a lot of the work we do in education. So I'm very excited. Do you want to say anything else about education elements and the work you guys do? Uh, I mean, I, I think the main thing is we help districts uh, think through and manage implementations of new teaching and learning strategies. Uh, it's a pretty intensive like consulting effort. And the root of my book, New School Rules, really came from you know our, our seven years of experience doing this and trying to figure out how to integrate some of the practices that we saw in many of the companies that you guys got to visit into education. Um, part of the reason we do our uh, tech tours is because, you know, a lot of times educators don't have a chance to see what kind of the workplace looks like outside of education. And it's, it's just become this really popular activity for everyone that comes to the summit. It's just really hard to fill all the, I mean, it's really easy to fill all those uh, spots for the tours because it's yeah. just so cool to go to places like Google and Facebook and Square and all, you know all the brand name companies. Yeah, definitely very cool. And even some uh, lesser known companies that are really doing amazing work and are incredibly influential. For example, I went to DocuSign and oh, yeah. I did not realize how vast their system was. I mean, I've used DocuSign as a as a consumer before, yeah, but they showed uh, this map that showed how many people were actively completing transactions, and it was a global map, and so you could see all over the world people were using their software at all times of the day, and it was just it was pretty impressive to see that, and it, I didn't realize how big they were before, but but anyway, that's that's pretty cool. So yeah, I, I just appreciate that you guys do that. One of the things that I just want to give your company some props for is that uh, a lot of times when you go to some professional development or you have a consulting company, they've got a way that you have to do things. And the thing that I've been the most impressed with in working with Education Elements is you guys have been helping us implement personalized learning. And the thing that I appreciate the most is that you have not said, this is what personalized learning looks like, and this is how you have to do it. You've said, what do you want personalized learning to look like in your school? And how are you going to get there? And you use a lot of different strategies to help us uh, tease that out from ourselves. But you don't come in and say, this is what it looks like and give us the answer from the beginning, which I just appreciate so much because I've got a very clear vision of what I want it to look like. And I'm so grateful that I get support to implement that vision. And so I just want to give you some props for, for that, because I think that's an excellent approach that really 
is challenging in some ways, but is also very exciting to be able to be trusted as a professional and given the latitude to make good decisions. So I want to say thanks for that. Yeah. I mean, thank you for mentioning that. But, you know, again, it just ties directly to the way we think about the work and even the book, because by the time we kind of come think through a way of doing something, put together all the materials, and by the time it gets to you, the conditions that we need to work in might have completely changed. And so we can't say that, you know, something we came up with five years ago is going to be applicable to your school uh, now. And so, you know, our job has always been to think through what you guys need now based on what's happening around the world and around your community and what you're trying to achieve. And so it's much more responsive to what your school specifically needs. And I think that's just the kind of the DNA of the approach that we've taken in. It's articulated in the in the book. It's even, you know, the format of a book, we're already kind of thinking about how we could have done things differently because, you know, we wrote the book literally about over a year ago uh, and then it took a year to get printed. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the challenges of a, of a physical book. And once you create something and it's out there, then, you know, you, it's pretty tough to change it. And, you know, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is if, if somebody's listened to all 240 episodes before this, they've heard my thoughts on education uh, grow and develop over time. And I think that my core philosophy has been pretty consistent the the whole time, but it's become refined and, and better as time goes on, which is really just, I think, the the way things really do happen. And and so I adjust this and I have different kinds of people on, you know, and and that I think is one of the things that we need to recognize in education is that things do change. And, you know, that's, that's what a lot of your book is about. And so it's set up as the six new school rules for how we should run our schools. And so, you know, I've got a few questions about those specifically that I'd like to kind of dive deep into, but I'm going to recommend right now that everybody goes and gets this book. And there's a link in the show notes at transformativeprincipal.org slash episode 244. You can check that out and and get a link to this and and get the book because I think the things that you put in there are really valuable. One of the ways that you talk about it is you talk about doing experiments at the end of each chapter. Can you talk a little bit about where those ideas for the experiments came from? Yeah. Um, so... There's a couple of things that I noticed um, in organizations. One is, you know, we all talk about failing forward, but we never set up conditions where we want to fail. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and often, like, because of the way, you know, stakeholders mandate stuff from us and ask us for reports and stuff, like, uh, there's a lot of planning that gets involved. And so the planning gets bigger and bigger. And, like, um, when you fail, like it actually becomes a big thing. And in fact, like there's never uh, something I try where I'm like, I'm instantly planning on failing and like I'm planning out how I'm going to fail for. Like I actually never operate in a model where I think I'm going to fail. And so we, we really focused on changing two pieces of the language around this. One is uh, moving to safe enough to try from failing forward to safe enough to try, which is like, what can I do now to try this uh, without committing my whole organization or committing my whole 
uh, philosophy to this, right? I just want to experiment. And that's how we came up with the experiment. Like, I want to experiment with this. I want to get some more data and information through this experiment so that I could do the next experiment. And that's how, you know, science evolves, right? Like you try a couple of things, you do a little bit more. And as you get more and more data, you continue to build on that. We don't like plan out all of the possible things that are going to happen and then try to execute against that. Because if you look at, you know, medical science or pharmaceutical science, they're constantly testing and testing over and over again, different conditions to build upon their learnings from uh, prior tests. And we, we generally don't do that in education. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And one, one aspect of that is moving that idea to safe enough to try. It's challenging to get teachers to be willing to change one because we see failure is a bad thing, but also just because the idea of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if it's, you know, what's the point of trying something new? If I know that this has worked before in the past, what's the imperative to to move in that direction? Why do we need to to do something different than we have been doing so that we can even think about something that's safe enough to try? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's just so obvious to to me when you look at things like, or companies like Blockbuster or the BlackBerry or Kodak, right? If we executed the uh, manufacturing of film and uh, cell phones with uh, keypads still, like we would still be using those types of things um, in a way that like we would miss the opportunity of having like a, a smartphone, right? And, or like something like Netflix where we could watch things on demand. And so doing things that have been successful in the past really well just means that um, you're preventing some form of evolution. And I think that uh, we're at a really critical state in education right now, where a couple things could actually, you know, move us from one kind of milestone in our evolutionary process around how we think about education to the next milestone. Uh, the first milestone was, you know, us just having classrooms and school buildings like public schools. And then we had the one classroom school model, and then we got automobiles and we were able to bus. So we got more industrial and we still have that model when, you know, we've gone to a completely different functional structure in the rest of the world, which is kind of what we call the kind of the networked structure. And there's a lot of similarities. I mean, uh, you know, just there's a buzzword around Bitcoin and blockchain and stuff, but there are a lot of similarities if you kind of map out like how currencies and bartering and, you know, the gold standard and relative currency trans transactions, and then cent central banks, and then now something like blockchain, which is like completely transparent general ledger system that's networked across the globe. Um, I, I think more and more things are moving towards that direction, and education really needs to evolve to get to that next next level. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And one of the things that I foresee in the future of education is that the tools that exist allow us to be so so free with the information piece that I really see the future of education being hyper localized that you know a small group of six to ten families could start a new school just like that and have access to 
as good as, if not better than curriculum than what their neighbor neighborhood school has to offer. And, and a good example of that is Acton Academy that I've had on this podcast before. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know those guys. Yeah, that's exactly what they did. And they don't need permission from anybody besides themselves to to start this school and and make it happen. And, you know, that that idea that families can create a network and then create that network among other families all over the world, that can definitely happen. And that's going to really disrupt education when parents decide to opt out of the public school system and start pursuing that kind of a learning opportunity that gives them so much more flexibility and so much more autonomy. I see those kinds of things as I personally don't see them as threats. I see them as opportunities for us in the public sector to do the same types of things and try to break away from the chains that bind us as they are right now. You know, I I think um, that's really astute of you, right? Because what I see happening, especially in Silicon Valley, and I haven't actually had the opportunity to actually visit one of these places because they're kind of secretive. But some of the really wealthy folks, like people like Elon Musk, apparently started their own schools for their kids. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, and Acton was actually the founder, Jeff Sandifer, was a really successful oil magnet uh, trader that started the school primarily for his kids, too. Um, and it was about 25 kids that they had in that school. Uh, so usually if you like look at the way services and products are rolled out into kind of the masses is things like the car were really only available for uh, really wealthy people for a period of time. And then as it got more efficient and easier to create things like the automobile or other services, they were made available for everyday people. And when you think about some of the things that are happening around workplace, like uh, organizations like WeWorks, where you know you could go to any city now and there's office space that you could use uh, and share amongst uh, many people. And WeWork recently just per- purchased an organization called Mission U to start offering education courses in their facilities. You could imagine how eventually, like that, something like that would lead to a part of an office or a part of a building being opened up to, um, you know, someone that wanted to start a school and there being a mass network of schools that get created and maybe even teachers being video conferenced across the country at multiple schools, you know, sites that are really small, like the one you described. Yeah. And, and I actually, I saw that press release about that shortly after coming back from the uh, trip in May in San Francisco and uh, wrote a blog post about that, about how I really see that as a real benefit that companies could offer that, you know, you don't have to worry about sending your kid to a school where there could be something as as tragic as a school shooting, or even bullying or harassment or whatever, they can work in the same space as you. And that could be a feature or benefit from a company that I think that we just you know, in the public education space, just are not really prepared for those kinds of opportunities to be to be had by our families. And not everybody can afford that, or that's not practical for everybody. But the idea that those things exist um, creates an, an imperative for us to start redesigning how we do things to 
to make our kids as successful and have as many opportunities as anybody else. And, you know, that's one thing it, we're supposed to be talking about your book, but we're, we're we keep dancing around it. Um, but that's one of the things that in the book that I, that I really appreciate is that the experiments lead to us, you know, starting something different. And then also just the rules themselves, you know, like the first one is plan for change, not perfection. And just constantly be aware of that, of those things and how we move from one thing to another uh, with that. And I think that's really important. Can you talk about, you know, maybe plan for change, not perfection. One of the things I really liked about that is one of the experiments is delineate between what you know and what you anticipate. Right. And that's an important thing to recognize as well. And and I thought that was from that chapter, the thing that I really walked away with is what you know and what you anticipate are two different things. And if you're not thinking carefully about that, then that's a problem. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so that was uh, generated after ob- observing a, a bunch of meetings in school districts. And uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but many meetings that I've experienced, they're trying to think about, you know, launching a new initiative. Maybe it's performance-based assessments or, you know, a new curriculum. And a good chunk and several meetings are talking about what if this happens or what if X, you know, it, it could range from what if a company goes out of business to, you know, what if the content on this particular chapter isn't appropriate for X, Y, and Z. And it, and it is pretty broad, but we spend in these what if scenarios a significant amount of time, you know, I would say hours per what if. And one of the things that I noticed is that as those things, people raise those questions, which I'm not saying are invalid, it prevents us from actually making decisions that are needed to move the ball forward. And so what Alexis and I came up with is, is there a way to separate those things out? And as we've been doing, as I've been doing some of this work, I've actually listed it out in three categories now. There are things that you absolutely know. There's things that you need to get more data on. And there's things that are anticipated, right? There's very little data and you're much of it is based on opinion or hearsay. And so uh, the thing, what we recommend is the things that you know, and if you could organize it this way, you could make quite a few decisions, maybe 25% of the decisions you need to make right away and get alignment and then put those aside. And then you have um, things that you need to collect more data on And those you might need to go talk to some other folks or do a little more research. And someone should be just assigned to that, uh, getting that information, bringing back to the group. And that's very actionable after a meeting. And then the things that you anticipate, one twist that we have uh, in our book is we ask the person that is raising that question to be the person that provides the evidence for what they're anticipating, as opposed to asking the person that is the project manager of this work. Uh, which is usually what happens, you know, in a typical board meeting, for example, you might hear a board member say, well, what if this happens? Like, where's the research around this? And somebody's, you know, scrambles to go get that research the next board meeting and comes back with a report. And then they go, what if this happens? And then you scramble. So all we're saying is it's great to bring those issues up. But if you're the person bringing it up, please provide the evidence because it's 
I'm not the one like raising that issue and don't put kind of the workload on me because that could be indefinite. And so if you feel that it's really important, go bring the evidence and we'll like use that as part of our decision-making process. Yeah. And, and that is so powerful because that is a rhetorical strategy that teachers, board members, principals, anybody who's resistant to change, that is a good way to stall any change effort. You just say, well, what if this happens? And then nobody knows what would happen if that happens. And so then everybody is like, oh, well, we can't move forward till we know the answer to that. And, and that's what I love about this approach is if you list the things that you anticipate, you can put that over there and you can say, okay, when this happens, or if this happens, this is a way that we could respond to it rather than let's just stop everything until we have that specific answer. And, right. and that, that is just, it's so easy to derail all kinds of plans with, without doing that. And what you provide is a way to avoid that challenge and make sure that you get to the work that you need to actually be doing. And you actually have movement and momentum. I, and I just, I thought that was a great example. Yeah, thanks. So I, I do a mastermind and I bought the the copies of the books at the conference for you and Alexis to sign for my mastermind. And one of the things that they that they brought up that was awesome was uh, the meeting agenda and how you've kind of turned that on its head and how you uh, don't start the meeting with an agenda, but you make the agenda when you get there, can you talk about when that is appropriate and, and how you do that in a school? Yeah. So there are a couple things that, you know, you have to think about. Like one is the example I give is um, let's say you have a meeting with 10 people. And if I gave everybody a blank piece of paper on that um, in that meeting and said, okay, we're going to start playing a game draw the game on the piece of paper and everybody would draw actually very different games, you know, from tic-tac-toe to hangman to trivia to whatever, whatever depictionary. And so what we noticed is because like, we think we all know what we're doing when we get into a meeting, yet everyone functions very differently because they're all playing different games. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is uh, have the meeting kind of leader say, well, I'm going to give you a piece of paper, but there's going to be a tic-tac-toe board. So now everybody knows we're playing tic-tac-toe and we just play. And as we get better and better at this, I'm going to be able to throw out a checkerboard and you're going to know to play checkers. And if I put chess pieces out there, you know to convert those from checkers to chess. So instead of us trying to figure out how we're working together, we already know the game rules, right? The, the rules of the game in order to engage in a meeting. And so we believe that like a way to increase engagement is to know what game you're playing, because often you're waiting for your game to start because you have an agenda item that is completely different right. than what's being discussed. And so I have no idea how long that's going to take, you know, especially these really long meetings, like the two, three hour meetings, you, you're what you're just sitting there wondering, like after an hour and a half, like if you're going to get to your agenda or not. And these people have been just arguing about what game they've been playing. It's super frustrating. So the protocol, the meeting protocol is designed to articulate what game you're playing, who's going when, how long they have, how to get everyone to contribute and have a role in that meeting game. And so that you could like have multiple cycles of that happening over and over again. And we found that it's the most effective way for 
meetings to have an, an engaging experience, an actionable experience, and one that generates data. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea is that you come to the meeting, you say, this is the agenda item that I want to talk about. And then you go through the agenda until everybody has been satisfied. Now, it seems like with all the things that schools are dealing with, it seems like the meetings could then just go on for days and days with that. How do you keep it from turning into a um, just this never-ending meeting that's just continuing all the time? Yeah, great question. So there are a couple things. One is uh, generally when people raise an agenda item, often like they actually don't know how to construct the problem of practice. And it's really essential for everybody to know how to construct a problem of practice in a consistent way so that when that problem gets presented, everyone has like all of the most of the data that they need in order to contribute or provide feedback. And so like one of the protocol items would be like, how do we construct? We call it a proposal in the book, but it's a it's really a problem of practice or a case study where we say, like, I have this problem. Here are the facts. Here's the information you think you need. Here are the participants. Here's kind of what happened. And if you have a, a, a structure and a routine around that, people can con- convey a lot of that information pretty quickly. And then if you had a routine around how feedback or quest- inquiry happens, like kind of like a Socratic method or inquiry-based questioning, you could actually control how much information is actually put on the table so that like a decision could be made actually probably in a 10 to 15 minute period is my guess for something fairly complicated. And if you think about some of the teacher practices after like reading a passage or something that you might see in an ELA course, like it, you, it, we're actually describing some of the common teaching practices that you see like in Socratic method or inquiry based learning. Yeah. So could you break that down in a real example of something that we could be talking about? Um, I can give you a couple of ideas if you want, or you can pull something that you're already thinking of. Yeah. I mean, if you have an idea, sure. Or something that's pertinent to you, that'd be great. Okay, great. Good. Those are my favorite, (laughs) but sometimes they're a little more challenging because I have all the information and you don't. So (laughs) that's all right. So one of the things that, that we're talking about at my school right now is, um, the idea of inclusion and that, all students deserve a uh, an education, and we shouldn't be segregating or excluding students just because they happen to not do well on some IQ test or whatever. And so then they get labeled as special ed when the reality is, is that they're probably perfectly capable. So we need to talk about how we get other teachers to understand that and agree to that and want those students in their general ed classes when they haven't had that experience before. And so that's going to be something that our special ed teacher wants to talk about at a at a staff meeting. What what process would we go through to to do the meeting agenda like you're talking about and bring that proposal forward? Great. So as the kind of the meeting leader, right? The, the first thing I would try to figure out with this person is, is this a brainstorming? Like, uh, are we brainstorming and trying to come up with ideas? Do you have an actual proposal, like something you want to do that you're wanting approval for? Or is there a decision you need somebody in the meeting to make? 
Yes. So the, what I love about what you just did there, Anthony, is you really clarified what it is that we're trying to do, which is is so important. So do we just need to talk about this? Do we need a brainstorm? Do we need to have ideas for how to actually implement it? So in my mind, this is already a decision that has been made. So now it's at the brainstorming solutions and opportunities for teachers stage. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that means that like, like just going back to the game analogy, you're not playing hangman, but you are maybe starting to play, you know, uh, Pictionary and you still need to play tic-tac-toe. Right. Okay. And so, so like hangman, like we're, we're not trying to make any more decisions. Like everybody knows like that protocol is not happening. Brainstorming, you could have a, a brainstorming protocol where there's, you know, a way to do brainstorming, right? Through sticky notes or through um, problems, uh, case studies, problems of practice, doing research. Like there's a lot of ways you could execute brainstorming, but you don't make it into a decision making. Like you don't commingle brainstorming with decision making or proposal generation. Okay. And so then we clearly state that at the beginning of the meeting and mm-hmm. and say this is a brainstorming because this decision's already been made. And so then how do you deal when people say, well, I don't think that's a good decision. I think we should do this instead, that we should still have pull-out special ed classes or whatever objection they may raise. How do you how do you keep that then on track? Yeah. Um, and do you need to when you clearly state it at the beginning? Yeah. So sometimes uh, like that pushback might be coming because people don't know exactly like who has kind of the ownership or the role to make that decision. So if that was clear, then the decision was made. There's somebody that's accountable for that decision. That's fine. Another way to approach it is after you could say after the brainstorming session, as we kind of think about all the possible solutions, let's see if it meets all of the conditions that we used in the decision. So you might say, well, yeah, like through our brainstorming process, tier one and two uh, students, like, yeah, like inclusion makes sense. But maybe for tier three, like it doesn't meet all of the things that we thought about. And through the brainstorming, that really came out. Okay, that makes sense. The issue I think people have is when a decision gets made, it doesn't mean that like it's bad to change or uh, adapt or evolve the decision you made or improve it. Exactly. Yes. And, and that piece there, you know, going back to the, to the first school rule plan for change, that there is really vital to, to making everything else work. And so if you say we're going to do whatever initiative and that's all we're going to focus on and that's all there is to it, and you're not ready to adapt and change as time goes on, then you're going to be struggling no matter what. And because you have to be able to be flexible, you have to adapt to change and, and all that stuff. And, and that's something that, you know, in my school, the, the thing that I tell my teachers regularly is, you know, whatever. So before I came to my school, there were talks of my school closing and people would come to me with this concern. I would say, Look, whether we close or not is immaterial to me because the school that is going to be here in two years is either going to be closed and not here at all, or it's going to be so different that there's no way anybody can say that that's the exact same school that it was. We're going to change so much and we're going to push so hard to do the best things and we're going to examine everything. That's just the nature of the beast now. And 
We don't need to be afraid of that. We can examine everything. We can look at it. Just because we make a decision today doesn't mean that we can't make a different decision tomorrow because with more information, that decision's better than our original decision. And to me, that seems really easy. But why is that something that's so challenging for for other people to come to grips with? Yeah, because I, often that leads to ambiguity. And uh, most people aren't uh, trained to work in ambiguous environments. So I think uh, if you think about the difference between someone that's a leader versus somebody um, on, on the line, people that are on the line don't operate with a lot of ambiguity. And usually leaders are constantly working in ambiguity. So the shift that you're struggling with is how to make all your teachers become leaders. Yeah. And once they realize that they're working in a world that is pretty ambiguous and it's not, they don't know exactly what they need to do 175 days from now. That's where like uh, they get uncertainty. And once you start getting uncertainty, you start losing confidence that you're doing a good job. And that's because, you know, teachers might feel like their job is to deliver instruction instead of, uh, you know, land learning with students. Yeah. And I, that is a, a problem that I have articulated for myself this year. How do I get my teachers to be not only teachers, but leaders as well? And the way that you said that, 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 that really, made an impact on me that leaders live in ambiguity while teachers do not. And that, I, I don't have my thoughts resolved around that just yet, but there's there's a lot of power there that many of the conflicts and problems that we face are when we get into ambiguous situations, which as a principal, nearly everything that I do is ambiguous. <laughs> and and as as a teacher, it's not you're delivering instruction, you're do, going through the motions day to day, and and there's very little ambiguity. You've got a syllabus and, and policies and things like that. So everything's pretty clear cut. So I have the seedling of a question in my mind, and I'm not sure quite quite where to go with that, but you've really helped me see something that I've been struggling with for quite some time. So thank you. Do you have any other words of wisdom about that? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, um, I, I think one of the things that like I, I think about is let, let's just take Starbucks, for example, right? Starbucks has uh, a latte and there's a structure for that. Corporate comes out with what that looks like and they provide all of the tools and resources and materials to a store. But when a customer walks in, that barista figures out what, in a dialogue with the customer, what that customer wants, because that customer wants a latte, but with a shot of vanilla, extra hot with almond milk instead, and they customize it. And the barista problem solves the needs of this particular customer. Imagine a, a, the current, a different experience, which is a customer comes in, uh, Starbucks has to create a latte and they order a latte and the customer asks for a couple of things and they're like, nope. This is the only thing I can do, even though I may or may not have some of the tools to do it. Like I'm, I'm not, I can't do it uh, because like we're told to actually deliver, uh, you know, a venti latte uh, that looks just like this. And so 
I think we have to shift in, and this notion of providing teachers with autonomy is kind of talking about this, which is like, what can they be autonomous for and what, what shouldn't they be autonomous for? Um, there is a point where a latte doesn't, isn't the latte anymore. Um, but there's also this need that like, as students are coming in, the teachers should be motivated and driven to problem solve the needs of each child. And that's what we are trying to get to with your district with personalized learning. It's like, how do we make teachers problem solvers of student learning, not the deliverers of instruction? Yeah. And, and the challenge that I have with that, Anthony, is that even with the uh, model of deliverers of instruction, the kids' needs are still not being met. Even with that, that old model, which teachers cling to and say, I have to teach this curriculum because the district adopted it or whatever. And right. even with that, even with those standards, you know, you look at the test scores and there are large numbers of kids who still, even with us saying we're doing that, it's still not working for them. And, and that's the part for me where it's like, you know, it's not working. You can see that it's not working, but customizing it for the student is still not happening. And yeah, and for me, that that just doesn't make sense in my mind, how we can still be going through those motions and know that they're not working. Yeah. I mean, we talk about that um, a little bit in the book, too. It's just like every organization is getting the results they currently get. And, you know, unless you change the way you do things. Right. Yeah. So, you know, what we've seen in education for such a long time is uh you know, there's a school with third grade math, they're not getting results. So they say, well, this curriculum isn't great. So we're going to buy a new curriculum and they take two years to implement it and a a lot of hours. And it still doesn't provide the results because they haven't changed the way they work. And so I I think we're trying to figure out like, what are the things a school needs to change in, in terms of how they work, not the things that they purchase and buy to implement, because whether you buy a book from Mifflin or McGraw Hill, like I don't think it's going to move the needle by a substantial amount. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. Well, Anthony, you've given me a lot to think about, and I greatly appreciate it. And and I wish that I could take twenty minutes to process this and then ask you more questions. And so I may send you an email or call you on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. And, and ask more about that because because that idea I I think is really hitting the nail on the head with the things that I'm thinking about right now. The last question that I ask each of my guests is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Good question. Um, one of the things that have, has been an incredible learning experience for me is we do internal daily, uh, monthly experiments in our company. And it has nothing to do with the work that we do. It has everything to do with trying to understand people's habits and behaviors. Uh, so an example of this would be, um, I think last year, like in October or November for the month, I said, I found this great research around meditation. I'm going to give everybody a chance to select any app they want uh, to utilize for guided meditation. And all we're asking for is a commitment of five minutes from each person to meditate. And that out of you know 24 hours, uh, that doesn't seem like a lot. So, you know, everyone's got super excited. By the time we launched it, I think uh, a third of the company got involved, um, maybe a little bit more. And it tapered off really quick. And maybe by the end, 
a third of the third were actually like involved with this on a daily basis. And the people that did it, like got a lot of gratification out of it. And the things that I learned were like, uh, these little things are really hard for people to engage in. Like, you know, I'm still arguing, like, pushing people to write reviews in our company uh, about my book on yeah. Amazon. And I, I think I only got a third of the people still. Uh, and it's been like three months, right? And so if, when we think about how to mobilize a workforce and you have a workforce that you're trying to mobilize in a direction, uh, it takes a lot of thinking and habit building. And so one of the things I found with these challenges is one, it helps me identify people that, can motivate to do things really quickly. Two, I'm always kind of thinking about like, how do I engage the other two thirds uh, in these things? And three, it it sets really realistic kind of expectations for me because something like a five minute thing is a third when it got any more complicated where it took like 15 minutes, uh, it actually like it even dropped off even more. So we might get like five people participating in something that takes 15 minutes to contribute to, uh, even if we mandate it. So I think leaders really have to think about how to mobilize people and inspire people to get stuff done. And it's not just telling them what to do. Yeah, that that is great. Because you really can't force anybody to do anything. And so you have to invite and make it worth their while to to do that thing that you're talking about. So that's really fantastic. I, I want to thank you again for your time on coming up on Transformative Principle again. If you're listening, transformativeprinciple.org slash episode 244. And you can follow Anthony on Twitter at A-N-T-H-O-N-X. And so thank you so much, Anthony. It's been awesome talking to you. Hey, nice chatting with you too. And uh, please invite me again in, in the future. Excellent. Will do. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.